can ask you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus uh, chapter 6. I'm going to, to start the reading um, in verse 26. It's immediately after the uh, genealogy, um, and in Exodus 6.26 we read, These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron, Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, virtually every day of the week uh, in, the, in the surgery, um, I see people who are worried about their hearts. This pain, you know, these symptoms, could it possibly mean um, I have a heart condition? I don't think, however, I have ever heard somebody come in and express concern that they have a hard heart. Not a kind of expression, really, that's used. Of course, when we, when we use that expression, we're not talking about our, our physical organ. We're not even thinking about the romance of Valentine's Day. Uh, we're thinking about the heart of me, 
you know, who, who I really am as a person. Well, in the passage that we're going to be looking at today, uh, there is a hardening of heart. There is a hardening of attitude uh, as far as Pharaoh is concerned. Uh, he's not for budging. He's not for listening. There's a complete impasse. He hears the words that Moses and Aaron deliver, the words that come from God, and yet he hardens his heart to all of that. And, and right at the outset, I mean, that is a message for all of us, is it not? The possibility that I can resist, that I don't allow what God says to penetrate. You remember the parable of the sower that Jesus taught? The seed comes out. The word of God is sown. And there was a category that was described. The hard ground. The path. The seed just bounces off it. It doesn't penetrate. It's not like the soft, tender soil that receives that word and the seed germinates and grows and a harvest is produced. It's not like that at all as far as the hard heart is concerned. You remember Jesus wept over the city. He said, you know, how often I wanted you to come to me, uh, but you wouldn't have it. You, you just would not have it. He said eventually about him, despite the, the miracles, the tenderness, the teaching, we won't want this man to reign over us. They hounded him to Calvary. His love meant nothing to them. Their hearts were hard. And so this is what we are thinking about uh, today. I want to do it under three headings, as you can see. Um, the passage is going to start at verse number 14. Um, initially, we thought some of the young people might be doing the reading, and I felt it was a bit much to ask them to go down these, these names in the genealogy, which is why we, we, we started where we did. But we're going to look at that whole section, and we're going, to, we're going to speak about, first of all, choices, and then we're going to speak about uh, signs, and finally, uh, opposition. Now, the passage actually starts with this genealogy for, for, for a real reason, for a couple of reasons, actually. First of all, uh, I mean, these are hard facts that are before us. I mean, this is not just kind of fanciful ideas regarding, you know, the story of the, the exodus of, of Moses and of Aaron and of Pharaoh. It's not a nice little kind of Disney-type thing that's being portrayed for us. The, the, this is history. This is history. You know, the genealogy is given point upon point. These were his parents. These were his grandparents. They were all part of this. And it goes down to say at the end of it, these are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said. It was this Moses. It was this Aaron. Let's not be in any doubt about it. It wasn't somebody else that was called Moses and Aaron. These were the men. And they were there at that time. It was them. This, in effect, is, is the DNA test of that time. 
the importance of these genealogies. And so, let's not be in any doubt when we open our Bibles that we can depend on them. This is truth. These are facts. This is history. It is not fanciful, made-up stuff. It's the Word of God transmitted to people, given to us that we can have confidence in. This is the truth that we can believe in. So that's the first point that comes out of the genealogy. The second point that comes out of the genealogy, and I hadn't really thought about this, to be honest, until I began to look at it this week. This is who Moses was. You know, if you read down uh, the verses that specifically talk about his parents, verse 20, Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister. She bore him Aaron and Moses. That's my mom. That's my dad. This is who I am. I'm part of this group, the people of God, the children of Israel. You know, Moses didn't always call himself that. There was a time when if you saw Moses walking by, everybody would have said, that's the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Because that's what he was known as for a period of time. The story that circulated was she was down by the river and miraculously, you know, she, she received a child from the great goddess Nile. And, and, and this is her son, Moses. He is the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And for a fair period of his life, that was his identity. And he was raised that way in the wisdom and the literature of Egypt. But there came a point when Moses made a choice and a decision. Now, we'll maybe get this verse up. It's an important one in Hebrews chapter 11, and I'm going to read this one to you. Because it tells us what lay behind his choice. This is Hebrews chapter 11 and verse number 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. What were the invisible things that Moses saw at that time? Well, I mean, physically he saw a lot, didn't he? He saw all the treasures of Egypt everything that he was heir apparent to. And yet he saw something else by faith. Isn't it remarkable, it says in these verses, that he considered the reproach of Christ. I mean, this is thousands of years before 
the Son of God was born in Bethlehem. And yet he knew about that because there are so many prophecies and predictions in our Old Testament Scripture. And he looked forward and he saw the unseen and he considered the treasure of knowing Christ surpassed everything that Egypt had to offer. And even despite the opposition, he endured because he saw him who is invisible. What a wonderful and important truth this is as we consider this genealogy that now is telling us, I'm not Pharaoh's daughter. I'm the son of Jochebed and Amran. I'm part of the people of God. I'm taking my stand with them. This is here where I stand. This is what is important. A choice. So it comes to all of us, every one of us, every day of our lives, the choices that we have to make. Christ or Egypt, seen or unseen. Choices that have to be made. Second point is about the signs. Now, what's taking place here in chapter 7? It's the, it's the prelude, if you like, to, to the plagues. The plagues begin just after this. The ten plagues that are going to devastate the land of Egypt. But here is, here is Moses and Aaron. They walk into the court of Pharaoh, into the lion's den. And uh, it's almost like a chess game. You know, it's, it's pawn, to, pawn to king four. It's the, it's the opening gambit. It's uh, jockeying for position. It's things are being introduced uh, as, as he begins to speak. Two men, by the way, in their 80s. Did you notice that? 80 and 83. We've heard a bit about that in the news this week, haven't we? You know, and, and maybe this is part of why he is feeling so... Uh, inadequate. Who am I? Oh, you know, stuttering and stammering, falling over. I'm an old man. How can, I, how can I say to them, let my people go, and how can I lead them? And yet God is saying, it's me that's behind you. I'm not asking you to do it. In all your weakness and feeling of inadequacy. And that comes to us. You know, what can I do? How, 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 how can I stand for God? How could I ever serve? Look at me. But it's not about us. It's about the strength of Christ being manifest throughout our weaknesses. You know, it's like the treasure that's in the clay pots so that the excellence of the glory might be seen to be of God and not uh, of us. Now, these signs and these wonders, they, they begin to be demonstrated in the court of Pharaoh. Aaron has got his, his staff. And just as Moses had been told at the burning bush, you know, the staff is thrown upon the ground. Who are you? Moses says. Prove yourself. You say God has sent you. Well, let me get some sort of idea about the God who stands behind you. 
and the, and the staff turns into a snake, a serpent. Well, rather than being convinced by that, what happens is this, is that he sends for his sorcerers and his magicians. And these are people who, who do the same thing. And his heart is hardened. Now, a couple of things about the whole idea of these signs here. I mean, the signs were to be a demonstration that God stood behind Moses and Aaron. And, and, and the plagues are part of this. Here is the power of God. Here is the, the evidence. Here are the signs that it is God who is here. And the Bible's big on this. John's gospel, for instance, is constructed round about seven signs that Jesus deliberately shows to the people. And in fact, at the end of the book of John's gospel, it says that there were many other signs that Jesus did that, you know, I suppose even the world wouldn't be able to contain them. But, but these are here so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing have life in his name. And so, so these signs were given as evidence and, and as proof. We read again in the book of Hebrews. You might want to turn to this one later on in the afternoon. Hebrews chapter 2 says this, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? A salvation which was delivered to us by the Lord. And, and then that was attested to, it was witnessed to by those who saw him. And, and God also testified to this by, by signs and wonders. All these miraculous things that happened in the early church. They were there to verify and to substantiate the reality that this gospel had come from God himself. I'd have to say, just as a wee qualifier here, for some people, there can be a problem as far as signs are concerned. You know, there were people in Jesus' day, and they kept on saying this, actually. Show us a sign. Show us a sign. If you really are who you say you are, show us a sign. And on one occasion, Jesus said, I'm not going to show you a sign. Because it doesn't matter how many signs I show you, you still won't believe. You know, there's one parable Jesus spoke about uh, the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man who goes to hell. And he says, you know, send somebody back from the dead. Let me go back from the dead. I've got, I've got my brothers to think about. And the reply is, even if somebody came back from the dead, they won't believe them. They won't believe them. And, and the question really begs to be asked here, what more could have been shown to Pharaoh? An eleventh plague? A twelfth plague? Would he have believed if it just had carried on? I mean, the point is, sadly for many people, they don't want to believe. There is something else. It's not just that they're looking for evidence, and when that evidence is there, then they're on board. 
irrespective of the evidence, there are people who will never believe. And that is a massive challenge to all of us because it's a heart problem. The heart needs to be changed. So let's come to the, to the final point, which I'm going to spend a little bit more time on. The, the opposition to the message and the opposition to God. Because I think we're now beginning to see what, what really lies behind Pharaoh's attitude. It's the whole evil, uh, demonic, dark, sinister, magical background that characterized Egypt, these sorcerers come out. They, they, they are actually able to do what Moses and Aaron are doing. And this wasn't smoke and mirrors. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't sleight of hand. They were able to do that. They were able to, to change a stick into a snake. And in fact, if you look, if you look down most of the, of the plagues, next what, the first plague is the plague of blood. If you look down to the end of that, it says that the sorcerers were able to do the same thing. They were able to go to the Nile and change the water into blood. And the majority of the plagues, they were able to replicate. There were some that they weren't able to do. They weren't able to um, uh, cause, cause gnats to come alive, you know, from, from the dust of the ground. They weren't able to do that one, but the majority, they were able to. What's this about? It's about the evil, demonic, idol worship that lay behind the power of Egypt, dark and oppressive. Now, what's fascinating is this, that, you know, the plagues that are going to come, they're, they're not random plagues. Just, don't, you know, it's not river into blood, you know, the cows, all the rest of it. Let's just pluck them out of the air. Not at all. Each one of these plagues represents a particular god that the Egyptians had. And Scripture tells us that gods are nothing, you know, they're, they're, they're bits of stone or whatever. But it tells us that behind these things, there lies demonic activity, demons. Satan and his demons. And this, this, this is what lies behind the opposition to the message, is demonic, satanic opposition. And so, for each of these gods, they're, they're taken on, they're targeted specifically in each of the plagues. The verse that helps us to understand that, if you want to turn to it, is in chapter 12 and verse 12. This is to do with the last plague. You know, and uh, well, what it says, first of all, is this. I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. You know, that tenth plague was one of them. Pharaoh was looked upon as a god, as a deity. And his firstborn son, 
would be the Pharaoh after him and would also be a deity. I mean, they had, they had deities that had frogs' heads. They had deities that had uh, representations like flies. They had deities that had cows' heads. All of these things are targeted. It's what lies behind the opposition, the power of darkness that we have here. Now, these things in some parts of the world are still very evident. And even in our part of the world where they may not be quite as evident, the reality of the power of darkness is still the same in opposing the things of God. I mean, Jesus taught this. If you go to Matthew 24, again, you might want to look at that one afterwards. He's talking about the future. And he talks about how that there will be false prophets that will arise in his name and claiming to be the Christ. And he says that they will be able to do that with great signs and wonders to the extent that if it was possible, they would be able to lead, us, lead astray the elect. Such was the convincing nature of what they are able to do. Again, if you want to go to another passage that talks about the same thing, you'll find this one in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. talks about the coming Antichrist, a figure that will appear upon the stage of history in, in, in the future. And this lawless person is activated by the power of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. So these things are reality. And yet, what it's part of is the continuation of the first prophecy that's mentioned in the Bible. It's how it works its way out throughout all of history. You remember after the fall of Adam and Eve, when sin corrupted the world and poisoned everything and everyone, the, the message of hope is held out there. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And yet the serpent will be continually striking at his heel. Now, that finds its fullest expression, its ultimate expression in Christ and on his death at Calvary. But the principle is there all the way through history. The serpent continues to strike at the seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman, of course, is what came through the godly line, through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, and what we have here as the people of God. And Satan is striking at the seed of the woman to destroy it. That's what all of this is about, the oppression in Egypt. It's about the destruction of the seed of the woman through whom the Messiah would eventually come as the Savior of the world. And we see example after example of that in the Bible. We see it, for instance, in the story of Esther. 
the attempted destruction of the Jews. We see it in the slaughter of the innocents before, at the time of the birth of Christ. We see it here. This is the great principle of opposition. Satanic, demonic reality as far as the opposition to the word of God is concerned. And as I said, all of this prefigures the greatest standoff of all, the greatest impasse which was upon the cross at Calvary. I mean, you think about all the mentions of Satan, even just in the night of Christ's betrayal. I mean, there were other instances, of course. There was the temptation of Christ, 40 days tempted by Satan. But just in that night of Christ's betrayal before the cross, what he said was this. He said, the prince of this world is coming, but he's got nothing in me. He said to the crowds, this is your hour and the power of darkness. It's recorded as far as Judas Iscariot is concerned. Then Satan entered into Judas and he went out and it was night. And the darkness that surrounded the scene upon Calvary, to some extent, it symbolizes this great confrontation, this great opposition that is satanic. When the serpent, in the ultimate sense, is striking the seed of the woman. Christ, born of the virgin, striking at him again and again. And yet the great truth is this, that the head of the serpent will be crushed despite the bruising of Christ's heel. One of the great passages that helps us understand this is in Hebrews chapter 2. Again, that's one that you might want to look at again. Through death, Christ destroyed him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and frees those who through fear of death are all their lifetime subject to bondage. The destruction of Satan upon the cross. Now, that's prefigured here in this incident. I mean, Egypt with all its satanic influence and oppression, Egypt, in all its opposition to God and the Word of God, Egypt will be devastated by the plagues. It will be a wasteland when the people of God are redeemed and they march out on their way to the promised land. Egypt's gone because of what what God does in his judgment upon them as far as these plagues are concerned. But maybe the question is in your mind today, how can we say that Satan is destroyed? You know, Hebrews 2. By death, through his death, he destroys him 
who has the power of death. Look around. Is there not wickedness everywhere? Is there not evil everywhere? You said there was that demonic activity in our world. So what does that mean? Well, what it means is this. I mean, if you go to that verse, Hebrews chapter 2, and you look at it, when it, when it used the word destroyed in the original Greek, the word actually means renders powerless. It means annuls. He annuls the power. Now, Satan will be destroyed completely one day. But at the cross, his power is annulled. He's rendered powerless. Sin has been dealt with. Sin can be, now can be atoned for. The sin of people's hearts can be forgiven now because the Son of God has laid down his life and has paid the price for that. In addition, death has been conquered. The Son of God is going to rise from the dead. The darkness will be broken. There's a new morning. And Christ steps out of the tomb. And Satan cannot keep him there. He cannot hold him down. Death has been shattered as a power. That's what Hebrews 2 is saying to us. He destroys him who has the power of death. And that means that for every believer in Christ, even when we reach that point in our weakness and sickness, that death is but a door that we walk through into a greater life and into a greater reality, into heaven itself with the presence of Christ. That is the wonderful thing that the death of Christ does because he has destroyed him. And so for every believer at this moment, death should hold no fear for us because of the reality of the wonderful gospel of Christ. That is the opposition. Through all of this, Moses and Aaron are continuing to learn something about the God they serve. I mean, they knew he was powerful. They, they, they knew he was the Almighty. But God began to reveal himself as the self-existent one, the self-sufficient one. I am Jehovah. They've learned something about his patience. What, what are they learning here? about God as he begins to destroy the land of Egypt? Well, they're going to learn this, that on the one hand, he will destroy those who oppose him, but he will redeem his people. He will redeem his people. He will bring them through the power of the Lamb, the power of the blood. Now, maybe we can go to that verse in Jude chapter 3 here, uh, uh, the book of Jude in verse 5, rather second last book of the Bible, because, I mean, what this is teaching us here is, is something that I think a lot of people have difficulty with. You look at the Old Testament stories like this and say, you know, the God of judgment, God of condemnation, doesn't seem to tally with the kindness, goodness of Christ. But look at this verse, the book of Jude, verse 5. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, 
that what? Jesus. Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Back in Exodus, we're reading about Jesus. Moses saw the Christ. Moses saw the Christ, Hebrews 11. Jesus saved. Jesus destroyed. Now, that is the twofold aspect of the gospel of Christ today that we're learning from this. We're learning that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him doesn't have to perish but have everlasting life. Those who don't believe, John chapter 3 says, are condemned already because they haven't believed in the only begotten Son of God. Both things are held out here about God, the goodness and the severity of God. God who condemns those who are guilty and who oppose him, whose hearts are hardened and who will not respond. And yet he redeems through precious blood those who place their faith in him. So the message is, how's your heart? Hard or soft? to the appeal of Christ, to the love of Christ, to the death of Christ? Or does it not mean very much to us at times? We've become used to it. It's just a matter of rote and repetition. How's our heart? Pharaoh hardened his. Now, shall we pray? Lord, thank you for what we learn of you your goodness as well as your severity, your justice as well as your salvation, your light and your love. Christ comes and he gives himself because he seeks and saves those who are lost. And yet, as he is doing that, we see upon the cross the terrible justice of Christ, of God that he has to endure and experience. So, Lord, today help us to have soft, tender hearts to receive the word of Christ, that it might mean something, that it might mean everything to us. And so we pray, Lord, you touch our hearts today with your grace as we ask a blessing in our Savior's name. Amen.